this year, I did something that I had never done before. I joined a protest, a Stop Asian Hate Peaceful March to be exact. Like so many others, I felt deeply impacted by the rising aggression and violence towards Asian communities around the world, particularly over the last couple of years. And while I felt hesitant to join the march initially, I came to see it as a way for me to show up and agitate for change. In this episode of Not Your Token Minority, I chat with the organiser of the Auckland Stop Asian Hate Peaceful March, Steph Tan, about why this march was so important to her and the complicated relationship people have with protest. She is open and honest about her experiences growing up in New Zealand and what attracted her to pursue her career in the US. She also shares her work as a public health specialist and the important contribution she's made to COVID testing in New Zealand. It's such a delight to be able to like talk to you this morning. I really admire all your work that you've put into like the Stop Asian Hate Peaceful March and being so outspoken on these important issues. And I'm really keen to just get to know you a little bit better as a person. Thanks um, so much. And so you're actually back in New Zealand briefly mm-hmm. from the States where yeah. you currently live and study and work. So do you want to introduce yourself and just talk about what brings you back from the States and how you ended up in the US as well? Yeah, sure thing. So I'm Steph and my Chinese name is Haihui. So I'm Steph Tan. I have a Singaporean name. So I'm Singaporean Chinese and I was born and raised in Auckland, New Zealand. And I'm now a public health scientist. So I do mental health research. I do public health research, COVID research. That's a big one I'm doing right now. And I'm also a master of public health student at Yale. And I did my undergrad at Cornell, which is also an American university. I left New Zealand in 2016. So start of 2016, I actually went to Australia. And it wasn't for me. I stayed there for about two years at the University of Sydney. And the culture just wasn't for me. And I have always been fascinated by overseas universities and that the opportunities that they offer both in academia and in the workforce afterwards. And just... I just have an urge to see the world. I grew up traveling and with my family really prioritizing travel and education. So those have always been really important values in my life. So I ended up in the US and ever since then, I felt this extreme sense of belonging and love and I absolutely love the country and my life over there. And so I am based there now. So there's a lot there. Um, You've obviously got such an impressive academic background, but I'd love to contrast your experiences in the States with your upbringing here. So what was your experience like growing up in Auckland? (laughs) A mixed bag. I wish I could say it's all puppies and rainbows, but I'm going to be really frank. It was really tough. I had both really intense family difficulties growing up and then also a really tough upbringing in the schools that I went to. I went to really Caucasian-dominated schools, so that led to also a lot of pointing out of differences. And I had racist encounters almost every single day of my childhood. From your fellow students? Yes, people in my class. And I had a small class as well, so a small school, small class in my primary school, and it was heavily racially motivated in terms of the comments that people would make, even if it didn't sound overt, but tons of overt racism. And so that obviously really made it so hard for me to feel a sense of belonging. And I felt such an extreme need to try fit in. 
it led to a lot of internalized racism as well. And so having to reverse a lot of that was obviously really challenging in the last several mm. years. But especially when racism happens in your childhood, it's so deeply ingrained in you that you just grow up believing you are inferior and you are different and that you have to try fit in. But I'm really, really grateful that I've been able to come to a place where I'm so proud to be Singaporean Chinese today. I'm proud to be everything that I identify with. And that's a really hard place to get to. Mm, it definitely is. And I think so many of us who grow up here, being of an ethnic minority, can really attest to that struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when do you think that shift started for you going from not wanting to associate with your heritage to being proud of it it took having to leave this country to be completely honest it wasn't until i moved to america so a lot of the bullying was guided by stereotypes and i feel like i had to just do everything the complete opposite way to break all those stereotypes and sometimes it's positive but sometimes it really isn't at all and then the further you try to steer away from the stereotypes you also just find yourself staring away from your heritage and going back to your family home and acting out not enjoying your parents or your siblings everything it's it's horrifying and you have this intense guilt mm. like maybe the way we treat our parents saying don't speak in that accent or don't talk out loud at these events i'm really embarrassed by that and that's so horrifying that we grow up feeling that way right I think about some of the ways that I acted and some of the things I used to say to my parents and it mm. makes me cringe oh. so much like yeah, I think I when you don't go through that you have no idea yes. how horrifying cringeworthy it is when you think back on it it's like wow that was such a terrible way to act a hundred percent yet we also have to recognize it's not our faults as mm. well like I definitely empathize with our parents because I think about if my I was a mom when I'm older and my kid comes home saying don't act this way don't bring this Chinese food to our shared lunch don't do this I would be super ashamed and sad but then at the same time you have to realize kids are just trying to fit in in this western society yeah. and I I try not to be too hard on myself about that and it's hard to also not have resentment towards society though being like I blame society for my yeah. behavior I'm more of thinking we can be constructive on this and say okay I was once this but now I can actively change that and decide not to think that way and yeah. have conversations with my family about that that's totally. more repairing and constructive what was your relationship like with your family growing up so my dad actually passed away when i was a child and that's what led to a lot of intense childhood trauma for me being here before he passed away he actually raised me speaking mandarin as my very first language mm. in new zealand nice. and so i went to school not speaking english and of course everyone was like okay well you're gonna have to learn which made complete sense so i did but then a lot of my cultures were really attacked and I was attacked for being Asian, etc. all the time. And then he passed away. So a lot of students, they asked what happened and they just made a lot of inappropriate comments. Let's say they were my friends and didn't make racist comments to me growing up. I'd say maybe they're just coming from a place of care, but it was this really awful curiosity that you should just shouldn't have for someone you just bully for years and years straight yeah. then to be like oh tell me what happened oh this and that and i'd have a lot of people really belittle my experience by saying oh like my parents went away to peru for eight months i miss them a lot or like oh uh they might get divorced i'm so sad and then i'd actually have to comfort everyone around me so i spent my whole high school and primary school doing that and that was obviously traumatizing in itself. So I moved schools and decided not to tell anyone what happened about my father passing away. 
and I just had to bottle up all my emotions. So obviously growing up, you know, that interplayed with all the racism that made my upbringing here so difficult. And my relationship with my mum and my brother became really strained because she obviously was trying to deal with that heartbreak and pain. And then I was feeling lost as well. And then my brother, he obviously not having a male figure in his life anymore was really challenging. He didn't have anyone to look up to, particularly, especially as my mum was struggling a lot. So that family dynamic definitely took about 10 years or so to repair. It's definitely a lot of work in the background that no one sees. And that's all the struggle at home that no one realizes. And so when I go to school after having all of that and someone makes a comment to me, that's not nice. That just already makes it a million times worse. And they have no idea what I have going on at home. So I think that's such a hard one in terms of childhood because a lot of people, you just never know what goes on at home for them. And then when people make, let's say, racist jokes that intend to be funny, uh, they have no idea how that can impact someone. What is your relationship like now? Mm-hmm. Has Do you feel like the relationship in your family has mended Mm, it's definitely so much better for sure it just took a lot of maturation on all of our ends in terms of for me I grew up in a very caretaker role so when my mother was really depressed from my dad passing and my brother was just trying to navigate the world as a male the only male in our family I am the youngest sibling actually but i became such a caretaker. I made my own lunch from an extremely young age. I just started becoming really independent and I was just forced into that independence at a very young age. And so I led my life that way continuously. And I had to leave home in order for me to actually establish gratitude for my family. And leaving home was meaningful to me in a lot of ways in the sense that I don't like to see it as escapism, but I felt it was necessary. It was leaving all that trauma I experienced growing up here, both racially, both family-wise, and just being in this country that I feel like is really hard for me to belong in. I just had to leave and see the world for what it was. And then when I started missing my family, that was a whole new feeling for me because I honestly didn't really experience that in terms – I definitely obviously miss my dad all the time, but missing my – other immediate family members because when you have such toxic relationships with people then you just don't miss it really so yeah. i'd go on school camps for a long time and everyone would be crying missing their family i'm like i actually don't know that feeling maybe something's wrong with me and then i left home to australia for university and i missed my family so much and i just started learning a lot more by myself about them and we started my mom and i we started bonding about my dad actually i'd almost get to know my dad in a way that I wouldn't have known him as a child. So getting to know him as an adult through my mum's eyes. So that was really meaningful and definitely helped to repair our bond. And we get along so much better today. And also that's because I came back here during the pandemic. So while this year has been really strange and weird and difficult being back home in New Zealand, or I don't know if I call it home, but being in my home country, I am really grateful though that I have got to spend time with my brother and my mum. I'm really glad to hear yeah. that that relationship has sort of come around. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's grown tremendously. Yeah. So tell me about your journey to the US. Like, did you always want to go to those Ivy League universities and what are you studying and working on? And yeah, tell me all of that. Yeah. Well, growing up, I'd heard of all those universities and I never saw myself actually doing it. I just thought this is such a dream. I think the students that go there must just be absolutely exceptional. Like I always just view people who went there as 
incredible as a and as a different species from me essentially like I never saw myself in those shoes and I did want to go overseas though so that's how I did end up in Australia but then as I just didn't feel like the culture fit me very well again racist events happened there and a lot of hazing etc just definitely not for me I started reflecting on where else I could go and I worked so hard like academically in high school and at university that I thought you know I think this is a possibility. So I started looking into it and I applied and yeah, I I got in. And when I got to Cornell at first, I just thought I'll be so lucky if I can just get C's because I just set really low standards for myself because I thought, again, it grew up thinking everyone was a different species from me. I just thought they're brilliant. I'm just so grateful to be in this environment with them. And then I actually ended up performing a lot greater than I expected and started having less imposter syndrome and saying, yes, I do belong here. And it wasn't even just academically or performance wise. It was also about how others made me feel. I had my friends introduce me as Steph instead of just, oh, my Asian friend, because I had that all the time growing up here. And I remember just being shocked whenever people were like, oh, this is Steph. She's from New Zealand. And I'm so used to being like, oh, yeah, Steph's Asian. Like, oh, you're from New Zealand. Where are you really from? You know, I even I got that just last week here that I wasn't really from here Mm. where I was really from. And then I just felt this extreme sense of surprise. Like, oh, my gosh, they're actually recognizing me for who I am. Or they'd be like Steph, the nice, funny friend, you know, actual personality aspects that I didn't have growing up because Mm. it was just the Asian label. I just felt so excited to be a part of that community that I really felt this extreme sense of belonging. And that's what I learned. It's about, let's say you grow up here, if you perform well academically or in sports or something else, you can belong in a way, but you don't entirely belong until you realize you feel socially accepted. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened when I went to the States. It was so normal to be Asian at Cornell and to be a person of color and to speak another language. Almost every single one of my friends spoke another language. And it was so cool having that cultural diversity be celebrated and not pointed out as a negative difference. Mm -hmm. So do you think that comes down to the smallness of New Zealand as well? Yes, I definitely think so. We definitely have more of a village or small country mentality. So I always empathize with that when I reflect on certain difficulties that I face here. So you probably know tall poppy syndrome, right? Mm. Yes. So I didn't realize how big of an issue that was until I got back here. And that is partially due to the small country mentality. And it is really suffocating, honestly. But I hope that... I'm hopeful that we can do more exploration and the more that people travel, the more that they can come back to New Zealand with some appreciation with diverse of diversity. Totally. Yeah. Do you want to explain a bit more about the tall poppy syndrome, just in case people may not understand it in those terms and mm-hmm. also some of the examples that you have of what you experienced yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I personally didn't know what tall poppy syndrome was until I got back here last year at the start of the pandemic. I had a lot of people explaining it to me after <laughs> I had like numerous and hundreds of horrific interactions mm-hmm. or just really strange interactions. So tall poppy syndrome is essentially when you have top poor uh, poppies growing in a field. And if one poppy grows taller, people will want to cut that poppy down. So that's at an equal height with every other poppy. And that essentially translates in terms of human behavior. If you stand out in New Zealand, if you excel, if you get 
val- or, I don't know, excellence in your work or anything, then people may not want to celebrate that. They see your success as a harm to them or just as undesirable because it makes them insecure. And so instead of celebrating from you and being influenced by you and working together, they will want to just shut you down and not want to hear it and not want to include you socially. I've really experienced that intensely being here. And it's hard to admit because coming back here, I always just saw myself as not better than anyone. I don't like to think of myself in that way. I really don't. So that it made me not think about why people were treating me a certain way. I started just saying, oh, is there some personality issue with me? Like, it's strange because I have a lot of amazing friends in America that would never treat me like this, but I come back here, what's up? And I, it made me check myself too much. Like, I started having introspection, like, what am I doing wrong? And then I realized it's not what I'm doing wrong. I had to have people who were really meaningful in my life and really supportive of me to say, it's just jealousy. It's extreme jealousy. It's tall poppy syndrome. Even just meeting members of public. So let's say I'd go out somewhere, I'd go to events to try and make friends after not being here for over five years. And we'd ask each other, like, what we do for work. And then as soon as they asked me, oh, what do you do? I'd say, I'm a public health scientist. I'm a master of public health student. They say, where? And I say, Yale. And they're like, oh, instead of like, wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. Tell me about it. It'd be like, oh, okay. And then they'd maybe walk away. Maybe if it was one person, I'd be like, okay, they were just having an off day. That's cool. But it was all the time. Mm. And I started, even the gym I went to everywhere, I just started not talking about myself anymore. All the conversations I had in any new friend groups I made, just everywhere I went, it became 99% about the other person. I just wouldn't even talk about myself. And no one would ask how I am, what are you doing, what's your work like? They'd maybe see me on the news with my science work, and then at first they'd be like, congrats, that's great. And then they see me more often on the TV, and then people would stop talking to me. I've lost several friends through this, but I'm honestly really grateful because these were childhood friends, and it just made me realize if they were still my friends today. They'd support me, not just in my down moments when I'm depressed. They would be there for me when I'm also doing well and excited. And I just didn't know that for so long because I was always told if people were there for you when you're down and under, they're true friends. But then I realized it's not just about that. What if people just enjoyed seeing me suffer because a successful person just wasn't, you know, peaking? What if they just liked seeing them down for a while? And It just made me realize my friends in America, they would never be like that. They'd celebrate me for all my successes and then all my down moments. They'd be there for all of it and they'd accept the whole package essentially. You can't cherry pick in your friends who, when you want to be there for Mm -hmm. them. So I'm really grateful that these situations have acted as a filter for me. So at first, while I was devastated that I lost some connections with people, at the same time, I'm so glad now that it's rounded down to help me realize who really cares for me and who's really there for me in the end. And it's also exposed you to new opportunities to meet different people who are better, really, if I'm being frank. Yeah, no, 100%. (laughs) I'm so grateful. Exactly. That's what happened. I have this undying loyalty to so many people in my life and my relationships. So I think I kept on chipping at those relationships and to no avail. And then, like you said, when I realized that I need to allocate my precious time more to people who genuinely care about me. So I started meeting some people who found these tall poppy experiences I was having so terrible. And they said, that's, you know, you don't deserve that. And I was like, wow, really? Like, it was so nice meeting people like that. And so I have met several people who really do support me. And 
Actually, the Stop Asian Hate March was a huge indicator for me. The friends who did turn up and the friends who didn't. It was interesting because a lot of the friends who did turn up were my newer friends as opposed to childhood friends. And that was the perfect filter for me. It was really painful because I thought, wow, out of all people, I thought these people would come because they went to Black Lives Matter. And I cannot believe that someone, I thought they'd consider me a close friend and then they didn't even go to this. Not just for Asian people, but for the bare minimum of supporting me as a person. I obviously was painful, but I'm so glad now that I can see that so clearly. Yeah, totally. And that's a great segue into talking about the stop Asian hate. Yes. Uh, All of that movement. So I was really surprised to learn that that was your first time doing any kind of protest or march. Yeah. And you went ahead and organized it. Oh, with the help, a tremendous help of so many people, because... I didn't even organize a 21st birthday party. Like, I I can't organize big events. This is crazy, let alone over 1,500 people. It was really an extraordinary effort that took so much energy out of Mm. me. I think, you know that metaphor or picture where a duck is swimming on top of a river and it looks very calm and serene? Then you see a snapshot of their legs and they're paddling insanely fast. (laughs) That was what we were going for, essentially, for the event. I think... When people see me organizing or at the event, they don't realize the intense lack of sleep and all the crying and all the Mm. intense work that went into it. And obviously, I had no idea what was coming. I essentially gave it a week because I thought this is where the momentum lies in terms of the Stop Asian Hate movement in the US. It makes sense to do it soon. But also a week is some amount of time to gather some people. I didn't expect that many people, honestly. I just said to my partner... Let's just do it. And he said, I don't care if it's just me and you holding a sign in Queen Street, just the two of us with a microphone, we're doing it. And I said, fantastic. And then obviously a lot of amazing people volunteered to come support and try gather as many people as possible. And it ended up being really awesome how many people showed up. Yeah, I was really, really impressed by just everything about it, the organization, the speeches, the turnout. Yeah. I think the turnout was great considering I think a lot of people are kind of hesitant to mm-hmm. take part in what they perceive to be a protest. Yeah, or- exactly. A hundred percent. I was wary about that first as well, because I thought for Black Lives Matter, they had a massive turnout and several marches. And then with Stop Asian Hate, at first I was like, oh, it's really sad that people have this selective advocacy of Black Lives Matter over Stop Asian Hate. And then it made me realize uh, a lot of people in the Asian community, like you said, there is this hesitancy because, number one, let's say in China, the policy is that you cannot protest. And so obviously that fear is instilled in the huge Chinese community we have in New Zealand. And then two, for Asians, it's – something that we learn to grow up being more reserved and holding our pain to ourselves. We're not told to talk about our issues. We're told just to deal with it and move on. And that's why when we see an event like this, maybe a lot of people are opposed to it. But then it was really incredible seeing the people who were opposed to it, but had a mind switch as they realized, you know what, this is such an incredibly important cause that it happened, hasn't happened in this way here yet. And we have to be a part of that. And it was really beautiful seeing the people who were able to come out and even the children of mm. parents. It's 
really amazing seeing that. Where do you think that mindset shift came from? For Like for me personally, if I give an example, I also kind of had that he- a little bit of hesitancy, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest. Because, That's understandable. Um, because, you know, protest is associated with quite negative things. Oh, but 100%. Then- I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I can't not go to this Mm. if I say that I am in support of all minorities and equality and all that kind of stuff. Like (laughs) I, for me, it was a no brainer after Mm. I realized that. What do you think it is for maybe some other people you might know who were hesitant, but then changed their minds? I think it's really beautiful. You have that realization, honestly, because it's just shows how important this is to you and for a lot of people. So I really commend that for me. I thought because I grew up in a Western society, so I saw movements slash protests as really normalized in my life, even though I am Asian. And like you said, protest has really negative connotations. I completely agree. I definitely didn't want to portray it as a protest. That's probably why I was so militant in every single interview saying it's a peaceful march, peaceful march. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone I came across were just like, peaceful march. And so I really liked that. And a lot of people obviously started using that terminology. And that wording really matters because then you see the way that other people portray the event. They say, oh, come to this really nice solidarity event. And people just talk differently when mm. they see peaceful march because you see protests and it brings out this more intense energy that people have and so it was really cool that even just the language change really drove a different way of thinking so i actually had a close friend who was chinese and she was all for supporting me and organizing this event but then i said okay so like do you want to come do this with me she was like wait like i don't know about coming and i was like wait what you're sitting with me as I started the Facebook page. And she said, honestly, I just don't think protests are a great idea. Like I think, et cetera, what you were saying. And I completely understood it because a lot of people think that way, especially in the Asian community. And so having that conversation was really meaningful because it helped me to understand how can we still pitch this event to people who feel just the way that she does. And having that sensitivity was really valuable. And what switched for her was when she saw the numbers grew on Facebook and say, this isn't just a little thing. This is huge and this is meaningful and this is what's going to drive social change. And it took me explaining that a lot as well about what we're doing. We're not yelling aimlessly. Mm. We're having intention and purpose and imagining what it's like for all of us, Asian people especially, standing together with other racial groups and saying, hey, it's not just us Asian people talking about this. It's others who want to support us. Actually visualizing that, was really important and so in the end she got our other friends to turn up with her and she was totally there in support at the front it was really amazing and I also had a white friend she told me that so she has a lot of anxiety about being in crowds etc and so she said oh my gosh I don't know what to do because I really want to support Steph and the Asian community in this and like you said support minority groups and she said what switched it for her was in the end what kind of person do I want to be And then she actually ended up gathering all her friends to come as well. Yeah, nice. And, you know, I don't want to sort of put out the message to people listening, like, if you don't go to protest, then you're a terrible person. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, know, I understand that protest isn't for everybody, but I do believe that if you genuinely do believe in a cause and you are able to go to a 
protest or peaceful march or however you want to frame it, I do think that that visibility is important to sort of amplify everyone's voices and push for those causes. Exactly. Um, I get that there are other ways of supporting and creating change, but... I don't know. I feel like real change really needs to be systemic and needs to come from the top. And the people at the top aren't really going to make those changes if they don't see people, you know. A hundred percent. In the end, it takes individuals all turning up. If one person even thinks, oh, maybe everyone else will go, I don't need to go. It doesn't matter. That's not the way we should think. We have to realize us as individuals are so powerful and impactful and every single one of us makes the biggest difference. Yes. What's really interesting is back to what you were saying about how people felt about the event. So I had a ton of Facebook messages before the event leading up to it of people saying, I really support this and I think it's amazing what we're doing here, but I just can't come because I don't know how I feel about protesting. It just seems Mm. useless to me. And I said, totally respect that, not forcing you to come at all. I really appreciate your solidarity. That's everything. And then they switched eventually just because Mm. I didn't force them. And also because they realized, you know what, everyone is turning up to this. I'm seeing this on WeChat and other Asian platforms now. It's not just something small. It's something really big. And a lot of us find strength and a lot less fear when we realize thousands are standing around one another. Definitely. Yeah, because it can be very scary just even on a legal level Mm. of just exposing yourself to the public like that. Like, I know a lot of people who wanted to volunteer their support. They said, oh, my gosh, I just don't know how my parents would feel about it. I don't want my name anywhere. I don't want people to see my name. It's just terrifying. And I say, I I totally get it. I really do. So I think just acknowledging that you totally understand actually did spark a lot of people to come anyway. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. because they felt like their concerns were addressed and that it was a choice that they were making. And it wasn't just me being like, you have to come. Yeah. So, yeah, that point about the parents is really interesting as well, because I also hesitated about telling my parents. I actually didn't tell them until they asked me what I had got up to that weekend. I was like, oh, you know, I took part in this like little march. Shindy yeah. weekend. <laughs> yeah, and they were so supportive. Aww. They, you know, on WeChat, you can send those little like, um, oh, the emojis. Yeah, emojis, Aww. and they were like, oh, celebrating. And I was like, oh my god, that's, <laughs> that's so nice. What a relief. Yeah, it was a relief, and it was actually quite moving because I didn't oh, yeah. really know where my parents stood in mm. terms of that, and to know that they supported me and being so active and vocal, it has really encouraged me to do more of that work now. Oh, I'm so glad to have that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's such positive reinforcement. I actually had the same. I first told my mom about this because she knows just growing up, we've had so many conversations about racism and she'd always say, we just have to put up with it. It's just what we do. We came to this country. It's just what we have to put up with. And I say, like, no, like I can't. Like mm. she says, racism is just going to last forever. Deal with it essentially. And so when I started this event, she said, oh, I support you wholeheartedly as a person. I don't entirely agree with what you're doing, but I'm going to be there to support you. And then when she saw everyone show up, she was so blown away and she was so proud. The whole, like, it was so meaningful. Like you said, having that validation and she just never operated in a way that would agree with this type of event, but she was totally there for it. And she said, this is so important that your younger generation does this because she says, I understand as a migrant, I think differently from you. You were raised here, born and raised with racism as a child and still ongoing that you guys all have to speak up now and drive that change. So she finally saw that. I feel like we were just kept hitting a wall with that conversation. Mm. But after her just seeing everyone turn up and actually show up 
having the same stories it made her realize that this was actually so meaningful i love that yeah and what was it like for you leading that march down queen street because i remember like there were so many people and everyone on the sides as well were like watching and it looked like they were in support yeah (laughs) yeah it was so surreal i couldn't see everyone until some of the photos and i thought oh my gosh i didn't realize that many people were behind all of us and so that was a really cool amazing feeling and i lost my voice because that's just how (laughs) (laughs) you were yelling so much yeah i know it was just so cool seeing the crowd get really amped and so i thought you know the person doing the chants has to also get everyone really amped and put put in 100 percent. and so yeah. many people afterwards told me they lost their voices too and that was so sweet just hearing that we put in everything and i think in my voice as well you can just hear it you can just hear the pain of just saying stop asian hate it's mm. just all of us knowing that we get it we get that experience and then the people who haven't experienced that they're listening to that and saying i cannot believe that my friends of color experience this almost on a daily basis so it was a display in so many different methods and i'm really proud of everyone who showed up and even like you said people who don't show up 100 percent, nothing on like I understand it's hard to do that, but the people who message showing solidarity and who weren't able to show up, I think it gives them motivation. Yeah. Seeing When they see that and think, oh, I missed out, it gives them motivation <laughs> for next time yeah, to totally. speak up. And something else interesting I'll bring up is while some people didn't show up and they say, I believe that there's another way we can do this, we can support in other ways, I say, sure, I'm all for it, but just tell me what they are. Like, seriously, what is it? Because – I've done everything I could in my own ways. I work in public health and a lot of that work is about reducing inequalities in terms of racial inequality, income inequality, everything. So it's inherent in my work. Number two, I already go on the radio for my science work and I've literally brought up Black Lives Matter. I've brought up racial issues in my science talks and Jesse Mulligan's, you know, really gracious to let me do that in a talk that's meant to be something completely different. So I've advocated on many avenues, yet it's really really difficult to really drive that change without something like a movement and that's why I felt that it was so necessary yeah well I'm sure like I speak on behalf of everyone else as well like we're so grateful for you to have organized that and to have done it so well and to have brought so many people together and also something that I thought of as well it's really great to see that solidarity and that Mm. connection that we all have with each other because I think we don't normally talk about this sort of stuff in our day-to-day lives and sometimes you don't really know where people stand and so it's really nice to feel a part of that movement and to feel a part of that community yes absolutely so you just brought up your public health work yeah so you actually had a really vital role in bringing a covid testing system to new zealand right yes that's right so i helped to establish saliva testing here for covid because the current nose swab which is called the nasopharyngeal swab if anyone who hasn't had it it goes through your nose to the back of your throat and maybe it gets twisted around a couple of times it's a very long swab and it's not the most comfortable for everyone especially for children or the elderly it can be really painful and with saliva testing because it's really painless you just simply drool in a tube it actually enables you to test more frequently because those border workers, they don't want that long ass swab in their nose all the time. Hmm. And that's how we get those cases that come out into the community because they won't get tested. And, you know, we've had news come out earlier on the pandemic, how some people hadn't been tested for over three months. And obviously that came as a huge shock to us. And 
we have to realize it's because the test that's available to them is not very comfortable at all. But now that the saliva testing at the border that has been implemented, it's really exciting that people can feel they can test with more comfort now. And I'm, I'm so excited that that's been able to roll out here. Yeah. How were you able to bring that over? Cause it was actually a Yale method. Yeah. Yes. So I am working with Dr. Ann Wiley. So she's actually a Kiwi who works at Yale and she invented the saliva testing method at Yale. It's called saliva direct. And she's been doing phenomenal work with our team in the U S with rolling out saliva testing across over 36 states now and over a hundred labs. It's really phenomenal. It's testing all over the country and really helping to save this pandemic a ton. And she's also expanded to the Philippines. So they're doing saliva direct over there now. And then I said to her, I'm in New Zealand right now and I'd love to bring saliva direct to New Zealand. I think this is so important and I can't believe we don't have it already. The thing about saliva direct is that it's a non-commercial method. So it's aimed to be free. It's essentially a protocol, meaning it's like a recipe or a method that she just put up online. And so scientists can look at that and follow that recipe or method and actually implement it themselves. So I sent that protocol to Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, et cetera, and other awesome health leaders in New Zealand. And from there on, we... It took a while to push for sure, because there does come with a lot of skepticism about the accuracy of saliva compared to the swab, because the swab quickly defaulted to the gold standard. Everyone just saw it as the only way to test. And with innovation, it can come with a lot of drawbacks and a lot of fear. So having to bridge over that fear was a huge part of my 2020. And then finally, by the end of 2020, I was able to convince a lot of scientists that we're determined to do this. And so they started getting some saliva samples at Jet Park, which is the COVID positive hotel. And then now we're doing it at the border. So it's definitely growing now in our response, but it's also been waiting in terms of New Zealand, waiting to see the evidence of saliva testing in all these other countries. So I had to pull out all this global data and say, here you go. It clearly works in all over the world really accurately and is really easy to test frequently. And with frequent testing, it actually matters more than if you do a swab every two weeks, because you clearly can easily get COVID in between that time. And even if a method was less accurate by, let's say, a few percentage points, it doesn't mean anything if you're testing frequently. You're going to catch that case. So part of my research informed this government report and Jacinda and other PM uh, parliament members were able to have that discussion. And it was so cool for me to be able to see those videos of them finally having it and making that difference. So I'm really glad that in the time I've been here, I've been able to achieve that goal. Yeah. And I personally will be so grateful if one day I do have to go in for a COVID test and I don't have to get that disgusting, <laughs> uncomfortable swab Yeah, and I can just like spit into a tube. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we have a, one company now that's approved to saliva test. So even if you reach out to them because you're going overseas, they probably would be able to give a saliva test for you. As a lot of countries, they actually accept saliva as a testing sample. Yeah. So you don't have to get the swab. So that's amazing news. And then we'll have some more companies here also. So I was testing and I've also been helping with 
uh, Ryman Retirement Villages. They have several across New Zealand and Australia. And they got in touch with me after seeing my work on the news. And from there on, we worked to get saliva testing in retirement villages for the elderly population, who we know are the most vulnerable in terms of COVID. And that was so meaningful knowing that they could get a lot more of a comfortable testing method because they already suffer from many other health conditions. And that would have been the cherry on top, having some awful swab go for them. So it's really healing knowing that and knowing that this method, what I truly believe can help to open up New Zealand society, help us to travel again by having, let's say, pre-departure saliva testing at the airport. That's in the works, by the way. So just knowing how meaningful this can be in keeping us safe. And also just obviously my experience of my dad passing away when I was young. I don't see COVID as just this pandemic virus. Like I connect with it so deeply on a personal level because I know what it's like to lose a father at such a young age and then navigating life with a single parent. And when I see people's fathers and mothers, et cetera, family members passing away from this, I'm not desensitized to it in any capacity. And so that obviously drives a lot of the work I do that to try to keep people safe. And there's no monetary gain from this. Like a lot of the work that Dr. Ann Wiley and I are doing for New Zealand. That's voluntary, essentially. It's our research that's in America that, you know, gets paid, but this is completely for free. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. What is it like for you working in public health in a country that's so criticized for its health system? In terms of America, because I'm coming from a country where I grew up with universal healthcare and I know how that hugely impacted the lives of me, my friends, and my family. I want to bring that experience to America and say, this is not a crazy, radical, strange socialist agenda. Literally, universal healthcare is a basic human right. It's really wild how most developing countries, if not every single one, developed countries, I mean, have a universal healthcare system. America is the only one that doesn't, yet it is the wealthiest country out there. So, Trying to implement a universal healthcare system one day, I know people will say, okay, that's crazy. In America, no way. But I've done some things that were considered impossible before, so there's no doubt that I can try, you know, yeah. hop onto that. So if not universal healthcare, which is essentially a goal in the end, having mental health policies set into place where you can subsidize therapy and other mental health care and really innovate what mental health care should look like in the future. Realizing it's not just for those with diagnosable mental disorders, making it accessible and equitable for everyone to normalize therapy and other mental health treatment methods as a really normal social behavior. It's just like if you have a cold and you go to a doctor, people don't blink an eye. They say that's normal. But if you don't have a mental disorder and you get therapy, people might be like, oh, it's like what's up? That's actually a really interesting field that I want to change and say, it's totally normal to get therapy, especially if it's subsidized. It's good for everyone. Every single person would benefit off it. Yeah. And a part, a big part of that is removing the stigma around mental illness, right? Absolutely. And removing that sort of perception that therapy is only for times when things go wrong in your life. Exactly. And also, I feel like therapy or being able to see a therapist is such a privilege as well that not everybody is able to access. Yes, sadly it is. And I hope it is not that way anymore because I didn't get therapy until very late in my life. I wasn't ever offered any counseling after my dad passed away, which I found really shocking to me. And I think obviously there are layers to that associated with racism, et cetera, growing up here. Whereas when I went to America, it was so normal for my friends and I 
we, because we were part of a college campus, we had subsidized mental health care and other healthcare treatment that a lot of people wouldn't have been able to have. And so counseling was really normalized and everyone would talk about it very freely and openly. And I said, man, imagine, I just acknowledge that this was a bubble that we were in. If Imagine if the whole country or the whole world could talk about therapy like that. And we had policies set in place to remove that stigma and make it really normalized. That's something that I can really explore through my work in public health. So I'm excited about that. Will there be a day when you bring all of your skills and experience and work back to New Zealand? Uh, That's a hard (laughs) one. I've gone on this a lot. Uh, I honestly, I I don't know because I can't predict the future. And I'm someone who doesn't like to plan for the future in that way. I currently see myself in America because I just feel this extreme sense of belonging there. And I just love it. Everything about my friends, my college life, my work opportunities. It's just, I feel very me there and I can be entirely myself. Whereas the tall poppy here is honestly so intense that I feel like suffocated that I can't entirely be myself and I can't express myself that it feels almost too challenging to even imagine myself working here. So that one is a hard one. I'd have to revisit that, but I, I, I'd love to see myself America in the next couple of years for sure. Nice. Yeah. And what about next steps in terms of your work in anti-Asian racism? Did you end up going to the Sydney March? Oh, no, I didn't end up going. So that came with some travel difficulties. Yeah, yeah, but I was in contact with the organizer and I watched it live actually nice. from my room. And that was really beautiful to see that. So yeah. it was so meaningful seeing the Sydney March be inspired by the Auckland one and take place. And they held it so well and, mm. They held it as a vigil, so that mm. was a really different vibe and aura, and I really liked that. And they are now establishing, I believe, a Brisbane and Melbourne march. Nice. So it's so fascinating seeing this grow. Yeah. And then my friends who fundraise the Stop Asian Hate tote bags, they actually said that they were a UK person was inspired by the Auckland march, and so they want to hold one over there. Mm. And so that's really meaningful to hear that as well. That must be so amazing to see the influence that your work has had it's really overseas it's it's really phenomenal well ever since i got interviewed by the wall street journal and then because that was global a lot of people then started messaging me on linkedin and seeing everything and then so i've had even i believe a ceo of walmart or a walmart leading team asked they wanted to have a panel and see how they could contribute to the stop asian hate movement and they asked me to speak and then some cnn etc a lot of people reached out and i can't accept everything because i'm already overwhelmed with a lot of messages because with all this positivity, unfortunately comes a lot of negativity. So I've actually had to take a huge break from the space and it's not that I don't care. Obviously it's, I've spent my whole several months dedicating myself to this cause. And I, in the end have had to pull back in some areas just to really take care of myself because I can't advocate as strongly as possible if I'm not doing yeah, that well. Totally, It's really hard because I, while I know most people are really supportive, those really harsh words from the public and racist words as well, they just really stick to you. And it's so hard to forget that. And you almost just can't. And so I've needed a lot of time to process that and just to take, you know, a break from, I guess, being in the public eye, et cetera. So I have found two people to try establish a Facebook group in New Zealand. So I'm thinking the title of it would be hashtag stop Asian hate. And then 
compassion in New Zealand. So a really positively framed page where Stop Asian Hate hashtag is more so just to show that the movement has been taken to Aotearoa. And I say compassion in New Zealand because I want people to see that it's not just a page. I don't want people to perceive it as a protest page of yelling and like what people- anger. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. We definitely, I'm really grateful for the two people who I found to establish this page because they're very level headed. They're very intelligent and just know that they want to go about it in a really mature and positive way where we're actually devising solutions and not just saying, here's a page for you all to join in and have no intention with it. So we're taking our time to establish that because we want to be incredibly intentional. And I'm really grateful that they're taking this on because I purposely sought out these people in the sense that I'm leaving New Zealand. Mm. It almost be impractical for me to establish this page. And also I'm not really on social media. I barely have it. And I don't think I'd be the right person for that role. Yeah. So, I am grateful that a lot of people have been able to see me as the face of the movement, but I wish people – I'm excited now for people to see that it's not just me, it's all of us. Yeah. And I'm just simply the person who feels exactly the way that they do, that things need to change and that, yes, I've ignited this and with the huge support of a lot of people, but I don't want people to see it as just me. That's really great that you have left the legacy that you have and – been able to inspire people to continue on that work. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come here. I know you're so busy and you're actually getting ready to leave in a couple of weeks. Yes, so that's right. Sad to see you go, but really excited to see where you take your work in the future Thank and you. to follow your progress in that. So yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and as always, thank you for listening. It was such a highlight for me to sit down with Steph and talk racism, activism and COVID testing. As you can hear, she is so eloquent and articulate and just a real joy to converse with. Steph and I also recorded an episode where we dive into some of the most common questions or comments people have when it comes to racism and how you can respond. Listen out for that in the coming weeks.